мной шли вдвоем, а фонарики горели. И прибитие их на момент прийти, и сердца наши замляли. Hello and welcome to the SRB podcast, where in each episode we discuss Eurasian politics and history. I'm your host, Sean Guillory. Before we get to the interview, I have a few comments on Russia's Duma elections. Russia held parliamentary elections to fill the 7th Duma on Sunday, and while the results were quite predictable, there are a few things worth noting. First, the low turnout. The overall turnout was 48%, the lowest in the post-Soviet period, and far lower than the 60% turnout in 2011. Turnout was particularly low in Russia's twin capitals, Moscow and St. Petersburg. The conventional take on this is that this bodes poorly for the Kremlin, no matter how hard they try to spin the results as a political mandate. But it is just as worth noting that the regime didn't even try to get out the vote. It downplayed the vote and even moved it forward, it seems, to quickly get it all over with. Russian elections from the Soviet period to the present were based on high turnout as a sign of legitimacy. Not this time. The low turnout is certainly a sign of apathy, but the Kremlin's lax effort to get out the vote also suggests that they were not really bothered by it. It seems they've realized that apathy has its own political benefits. The second thing worth noting is United Russia getting a supermajority by capturing 344 of the Duma's 450 seats. It's worth remembering that in this election, 225 seats were single candidate and 225 seats were party list. United Russia captured almost all the single-candidate elections. This is significant for ER's supermajority, because if this election was party list only, it would have won only 243 seats, a majority, but not a supermajority, capable of amending the Russian constitution. In all, the introduction of single-seat elections was an ingenious way to boost ER's representation in a climate where its popularity was questioned. Lastly, it remains to be seen what kind of fallout will be in the coming days, weeks, and months. Russia has some pretty unpleasant social reforms in its future, and whether the new Duma and a new government makes those easier will be revealed in some time. I suspect everything will now turn to 2018 for the presidential election. I'm sure mobilizing the vote will be a priority. Because while the Duma is virtually meaningless, and nobody really wants to spend the resources to get out the vote for something as empty as the Duma, the presidency, especially if its occupant will be a certain Vladimir Putin, is not. Welcome David Foglingsong to the podcast to talk about the long history of the American effort to free Russia. Foglingsong's book, The American Mission and the Evil Empire, had a great influence on me, mostly because it shows that the American desire to free Russia began in the late 19th century, not during the Cold War. And he shows that many of the tropes we use to understand Russia today come from that period. 
David Forlegzon is a professor of history at Rutgers University, where he specializes in American and Russian relations. He's the author of The American Mission and the Evil Empire. His most recent article is The Perils of Prophecy, American Predictions About Russia's Future Since 1881. Here's David Forlegzon. So it's been almost 10 years since you published The American Mission and the Evil Empire, where you examine the history of American imaginations of Russia, and in particular, the American mission to free it. Let's start by having you lay out some of the book's main premises for those who aren't familiar with your work. Well, my, my interest in the topic arose first in uh, the early 1990s when I was in uh, Russia, finishing the research for my first book about U.S. intervention in the Russian Civil War. And it was hard to ignore that there was a multifaceted effort underway to change, transform, reform Russia. And the, I, I think the most striking moment for me was when I went on a little uh, excursion and was north of Moscow on the, on the river there and was on the Raketa, the hydrofoil, and uh, met a Pentecostal missionary from Florida. And the way that he talked about how Russians who converted with him to Protestant Christianity, the way that they achieved almost instantaneous financial success, finally got the careers going that they wanted to start, the connection that he kept emphasizing between those two things started me thinking about the relationships between different dimensions of the American uh, drive to reform or transform or convert Russia. And so I guess that was striking to me because um, Americans have often focused on the political dimension. And that was a, probably the top note in thinking in the 1990s that we were promoting democracy in Russia, the democratization of Russia. And I think the economic dimension of uh, transforming Russia and the religious dimension have gotten less attention from scholars, especially the religious dimension. And so that was that was one starting point or premise for my research was to pay attention to all three dimensions of American efforts to change Russia. A key initial question was, where did Americans get this idea that they could or should undertake this task? After all, having been trained in Russian as well as American history at Berkeley, I, I knew Russia has a very different history from the United States. I mean, where do we get this idea that Americans can and, and should remake Russia? So that was another starting point. I, I think two of the other important premises for the book were one, that the idea of the Cold War that has shaped so much of American scholarship about Russia and about American-Russian relations obscures as much or more as I think it uh, reveals. And in particular, in particular, the, the, um, the focus on the Cold War as a discrete period from the late 1940s to the late 1980s and neglecting perspective on what came before 1946 or 1947, I think that has a distorting impact. And so one premise for my book is to take a longer range historical perspective on American-Russian relations, and not just to go back to 1917, but to think about in what ways American ideas about Russia that are important in the Cold War and now again in the post-Cold War era emerged even before the Bolsheviks seized power in Russia in 1917. So uh, uh, one premise is to want to challenge or to shake up the conventional periodization of American Soviet and American-Russian uh, relations. Uh, and then the, the last premise that I would mention is that I think diplomatic historians, American diplomatic historians, have had a tendency to write the history of American-Russian relations as something entirely separate from the history of American relations with Latin American nations, with Asian nations, uh, with other European nations. It's a thing, it's a thing off on its, on its own, separate. And I, in the book, I try to challenge that, and, and particularly by raising ideas about an American mission to remake foreign nations. I think we can put Russia within the mainstream of American ambition to um, regenerate, reform, transform, occupy, and remake foreign countries. And so that's another ambition of the book, is to open up the possibility of seeing how ideas that are uh, applied to Russia are not necessarily just unique and a function of peculiarities of Russia, but that they also reflect underlying assumptions that are evident in American relations with other countries. And that's definitely the case. Like You can see this mission arising in the late 19th century as part of a wider effort 
in the Western world in general to convert or to to reform colonies or to reform other nations and then going all the way through the 20th century. But before we get into some of those issues, when I read the book several years ago, one of the, the concepts that struck me uh, in your book was the relationship between Russia and the United States. And the notion that for the United States, Russia functions as this dark double or imaginary twin. Talk about this concept and, and how it functioned historically. I was a graduate student at Berkeley in the uh, 1980s, and uh, one of the professors that I encountered there was Michael Rogan in the in the political science department. And he had uh, written uh, about American political demonology. So he had this concept of the uh, the dark double or the or the imaginary twin, but he thought of it primarily in terms of United States relations with the Soviet Union in the Cold War. And so what I did is to take his concept and to apply it to American-Russian relations going back into the late 19th century. And that led me to disagree with the Stanford historian David Kennedy, who has argued in, some, in a very interesting article about the function of American images and attitudes toward foreign countries for our na own national identity. David Kennedy argued that before the First World War, uh, our images of foreign nations were not emotionally charged in a Freudian sense, not sufficiently emotionally charged to do the work of confirming, affirming, reaffirming American notions of American national identity. And I think that's wrong. Uh, and I've tried to show that by going back into the late 19th century and showing that how Russia first came to play this role of being the uh, alter ego or um, dark double for the United States. Uh, or imaginary twin. And that functions in different ways, and that's reflected in my title about the American mission and the evil empire. So on the one hand, the notion that Russia can be transformed by Americans. On the other hand, the demonization of Russia, particularly when Russia is not undergoing the kind of reform that Americans hope to see there. But why Russia? Why would Russia function as this? Or is Russia one of many other places that function as this dark double? Well, I think uh, a lot of other countries have functioned at some periods of time as a, a dark double, an other against which American virtue is defined. But I think you could say that with regard to Germany in the First World War. You could say that with regard to Japan in the Second World War. But those are discrete periods, and those are rel relatively short periods of time that those foreign nations fulfill that function. And I think what's unique about Russia is how long Russia has played that role. I mean, anybody reading the newspaper or watching the television news today can see the way that Putin and Russia are having a sort of obsessive, uh, they're, they're an obsessive focus for the American mass media. So it continues today and it originated in the late 19th century. And so I don't, I don't think there's any other nation that has been as important for American national self-definition uh, since the late 19th century. I think one could argue that Britain played that role most in the late 18th century and maybe the first half or first two-thirds of the 19th century, but that since then, Russia has played that role. Your question is, why, why Russia in particular? I think to understand that, you have to go back into the 19th century and think about how Americans thought about Russia as being somehow akin to the United States. So before the period of hostility and animosity, before the first development of a crusade for a free Russia, there already were earlier ideas that Russians and Americans are under the skin alike. Their, their political systems are diametrically opposite, a republic and the darkest autocracy uh, in Europe. They're politically opposite, but Look at the ways that they are similar or moving along historical paths that are parallel. We expanded westward ac uh, across the continent and had our frontier experience, presumably and you know wrongly in terms of the presumption. Russia expanded eastward across the continent, and therefore their their frontier experience must have been similar and must have conferred a similar sort of spirit in the people, adventurous pioneering, uh, a sense of distance, a sense of expansiveness, a sense of uh, freedom across that space. Uh, and then uh, also think about the way that Americans were very attentive in the 19th century to the fact that Alexander II emancipated the serfs just two years before Abraham Lincoln emancipated the slaves. And things like that are held up as examples of how you see really uh, the historical trajectory 
is parallel rather than in in conflict. And, and that, I think, sets up why Russia would come to function so well as this imaginary twin. I mean, there are other, other things you can build into it. Russians are white. Uh, Japan, uh, maybe China could play that role of a dark double or imaginary twin for a period of time, but they're they're not white. They're racially other. They so they they they're not seen as akin to the United States in the way that Russia could be. And, and Russia is, in American minds in the 19th century, at least nominally Christian. So in all of those ways, there are enough similarities that Russia could be seen as a, uh, an imaginary twin, uh, a nation that could easily be the mirror image for the United States. And now your study begins in the 1880s, and I, I actually find the the pre-Russian revolutionary period, the 19th century, actually the most fascinating because why Russia emerges as this opposite or as the United States or this imaginary twin is, is interesting that it develops in the 19th century. And you note that before the 1880s, Russia, like you just said, that Russia was considered by Americans as having a similar trajectory, but Russia was nonetheless considered backward and and in a despotism, et cetera. But it, and it didn't really occupy a distinct place. At least it doesn't doesn't seem to have occupied a distinct place in the American imagination. But what changed in the eighteen eighties? Well, I th I think there was a distinct place in the American imagination as America's best friend among the great powers of the world. Unlike Britain, un unlike France, more consistently friendly, further away. Norman Saul uses the, uses the title uh, Distant Friends in a book about American-Russian relations up to 1867. Far enough away that we don't seem to have any uh, major uh, strategic conflicts. The, there's the whole mythology about Russia tacitly uh, being allied with us in the American Civil War and sending its fleets to New York and San Francisco in order to send a signal to the British and the French not to eat, not to intervene on the side of the South in the American Civil War. So I do think that Russia did occupy a distinct place in the American imagination as our distant friend, our tacit ally uh, among the uh, among the European powers. But I think what changes in the 1880s that's a that's a complex story. Uh, uh, key starting point is the assassination of Alexander II, which spurs many Americans, especially newspaper editors, journalists, it spurs many Americans to begin questioning, should we ma maintain our traditional friendliness to the Tsarist government, or should we sympathize more with the Russian revolutionary movement? And there's a great deal of ambivalence at that time about uh, about that because inside the United States you have a sort of revolutionary movement developing or at least there's a fear of a revolutionary movement after the great railroad strike in the late 1870s with the Haymarket Square incident in Chicago with the, the, the sort of menace of uh, foreign-born anarchists, socialists, communists inside the United States. There's a real ambivalence about how should, how should we react to a bomb-throwing bunch of nihilists in Russia. And in the 1880s, some um, uh, American journalists, especially, begin to make the argument that we should actually sympathize with the Russian revolutionaries and not with the Tsarist government. And this comes at a time when, this, when the Tsarist government becomes more repressive, abandons the reforms of Alexander II, becomes more repressive under Alexander III. This is a time of pogroms against Jews worsening in the in the late 19th century. It's a time of massively increased Jewish emigration to the United States and Jews then bringing stories of the horrible persecution inside Russia. It's a time when major American manufacturers are coming to see Russia as a more and more valuable market for things like Singer sewing machines and uh, and McCormick Reapers, McCormick Harvesting Machines. So Russia is getting a lot more attention from the 1880s on, and it's pushing Americans to think about, well, uh, do we need to change our historic view of Russia as a distant friend? After all, Russia is in, in some ways drawing closer to us with the greater migration, with the telegraph and the steamship. It's, it's, not, so, it's not so distant anymore. So those are some of the things that are changing in the 1880s. The, si the single most important thing that happens in the 1880s is that George Kennan, the elder, an American journalist and explorer, goes back to Russia and undertakes an investigation of the Siberian exile system. And in that process, he 
shifts from being a friend of the czarist government and the Russian elite to being the foremost American critic of the czarist government and then undertakes uh, a campaign to change American minds about the revolutionary movement and to argue that it's not a bunch of wild-eyed anarchists, uh, long-haired, bomb-throwing, strange figures. Actually, it's the most noble and cultivated men and women of Russia are in the Russian revolutionary movement and their fondest ambition once Russia is freed from Tsarist despotism is to have a United States of Russia to emulate the American example. Kennan really launches that campaign in the late 1980s, even before he published his book on Siberia and the exile system in the early 1890s. Yeah, and and, and we should state that Kennan has an enormous influence over how Americans understand Russia, because he's also, when he gets back to the United States, he's touring and he's speaking about what life is like in Russia to a lot of American audiences. Yes, he is. Um, hundreds of, of lectures ac uh, across the country, as well as numerous magazine articles. So he exerts an enormous impact. And when we get to 1917, we can see how deep his impact was, because the way that Americans respond to the revolution of 1917 is shaped to a significant extent by the ideas that Kennan has been agitating for propagating since the late 19th century. Now, the thing, though, that I, I wonder, what did it mean to free Russia? And, and going to one of your main questions you asked is, what gives Americans the right to think that they should midwife Russia's freedom? Well, from the beginning, I think to free Russia means to many Americans that uh, you would make Russia like the United States. That is, I think, a central or maybe the central idea that George Kennan the Elder puts forward in his magazine articles and in his uh, lectures. And he had a number of ways of trying to make that case, which might seem implausible to people who are knowledgeable about uh, Russian history, but he had a number of ways of suggesting that once Russia was freed from czarist despotism, what, what would happen would be that Russia would become much more like the United States, that a free Russia would essentially mean a, a United States of Russia, a Russia remade in the American image. So one of his favorite ways of telling that story was to, was to tell a story about the celebration of the centennial of the American Revolution in a Russian prison where Russian political prisoners knew in advance that uh, July 4th, 1876 was approaching. And so they gathered together little bits of red, white, and blue cloth and, and stitched together small American flags. And then when the great day of July 4th, 1876 came, they bravely displayed those flags through the bars of their prison cells. Audiences love that kind of story. And they we know from accounts that, you know, men would stand and stomp their feet. Ladies would wave their handkerchiefs. There was great excitement about this idea. And I, I think to understand that, you have to think about what was going on in America in the late 19th century. Extensive political corruption, a highly materialistic society, people deeply concerned by the uh, rising power of big corporations, concerned also about big labor unions, segregation, discrimination, lynching of African-Americans in the South. There are, in a lot of ways, the United States is not a perfect society in the late 19th century. But to, to embrace the idea that Russians just um, long to be remade in the image of the United States is to sort of set aside all your awareness of the imperfections of the United States and say, in Russian eyes, we are the shining city upon a hill. So I think to be a, a free Russia means a Russia that would shift from orthodoxy to Protestantism, a Russia that would be more and more embrace American trade and be uh, uplifted, modernized through the influence of American advanced technology. In addition to uh, sewing machines and harvesters that I mentioned before, Baldwin locomotives, so modern in that sense, Protestant in terms of religion and freed in terms of adopting a, a, a republican form of of government instead of the instead of the monarchy so you know those would be the specific manifestations but i think in american minds there's a there's a more general more nebulous sense that russia would just be the spitting image of the united states was there a strong ideology at in that early period in the late 19th century of 
capitalism, or does that develop later after in response to the Soviet experience? I don't think there's a strong ideology of that in the late 19th century or early 20th century. There's nothing to provoke the definition of it so sharply in contrast to the way that Russians are doing business. So I think that sort of ideology comes later, mid 20th century. It's certainly sharply developed with the notion of people's capitalism put forward in the middle of the 20th century in contrast to Soviet socialism or Soviet communism. Yeah, I, I don't, I don't think it's there in the late 19th, early 20th century, but there is this sense that America's sewing machines and harvesting machines and locomotives are, that's not just about American business. It's also a part of a project of doing something good in the world, of uplifting foreign peoples. And what about the right? Like, what, what is it about gives Americans this inherent right that they should spread their likeness around the world or to Russia in particular? I guess that presumption that Russians want to be remade in America's image gives Americans some sense of a right. But but I think Americans also thought about it in terms of a duty, a humanitarian duty to come to the relief of the persecuted Russian Jews. Americans think about it in terms of a calling of, you know, where we, we have a mission in the, in the world. People are doing some extraordinary things in these days. Methodist missionaries are in, in, infiltrating the Tsarist empire from Bulgaria with with a sense of they've got to get into Russia to preach the gospel, and um, it's illegal to do that to proselytize among the Orthodox. So they seek out Protestant sects in Russia where they where they can work. There's that kind of daring, bold, uh, risk taking sense of drive uh, that is present in the late 19th century. Uh, that's you know b- sort of bypasses the question: Do we have a right to do this? They just feel uh, called, pulled to engage in it. Yeah, and then let's talk about the issue of religion, because not only do you repeatedly refer to the American desire to free Russia as a crusade or a mission in the religious sense, in fact, American evangelicalism occupies an important place throughout. I mean, you just mentioned the fact that you have American missionaries that are trying to go into Russia and convert people to Protestantism or influence Protestant sects in Russia. And and this evangelicalism, of course, continues throughout the 20th century. I mean, Ronald Reagan is a perfect example of, of the influence of this. What is the relationship between American evangelicalism and the desire to free Russia? Well, I think the, the deepest relationship is through the way that religion is at the heart of American exceptionalism and of um, uh, American identity. We know from surveys that through the late 20th century, I suppose even now in the 21st century, unlike the increasingly secular European nations, Western European nations, there's much more church going in the United States. There's a much stronger evangelical movement that this is one of the things that differentiates the United States among modern industrialized societies, uh, the extent of religious faith in the United States. And I think going back to the late 19th century, if you asked people what made the United States such a great country? Many of them would say it's a Christian country, and this specifically, it's a it's a Protestant country. That that's at the heart of why the United States is uh, a model for the world. We have the Protestant work ethic. We have uh, an idealism about our place in the world. I think this ultimately traces back to the role of religion in the uh, in the founding of the American colonies, going back to the Puritans and uh, Winthrop's notion of, of colonies as a shining city upon a hill. So I think part of this is through the role of uh, religion in American exceptionalism and in American national identity. Who are we? The answer to that question, I think uh, a big part of, that, part of that for many Americans running through the 20th century is about religion, religious religious faith. One of the things that interests me with regard to evangelicalism is how the specific denominations that are at the forefront can change and even new denominations emerge. So there were no Pentecostals before the 19-teens, right? It's a it's a new faith that emerges. So earlier it was uh, Baptists and Seventh-day Adventists. The, the, the specific denominations that are involved can can change over time, and yet there's an underlying drive to uh, emancipate, liberate, convert 
Russia. I think one one thing that is worth noting, um, I, I mentioned it in passing before about Russia, is that in in the late 19th century, early 20th century, many Americans, more Americans, more American missionaries, focused on China than on Russia, but they w- were not experiencing great success in China with the language barrier, with the barrier uh, of race. So. One of the things that promotes enthusiasm about a crusade in Russia is the notion that it might be easier in Russia with a country that is nominally Christian. Yes, they have a corrupt, bastardized, superstition-prone form of Christianity in uh, in the stereotypical American views. But nonetheless, the fact that they are nominally Christian creates a foundation for us to build upon. So the, there, there was definitely a discourse of Russian Orthodoxy being what, just as you said, corrupt and superstition laden. That they, they don't Russians may be nominally Christian, but they don't have the true faith. Yeah, it's interesting how that plays out, isn't it? Because once the Bolsheviks seize power, then the Orthodox Church can become an American ally in the mission of an anti-Bolshevik. Uh, agenda, and we see this especially at the height of the Cold War in the in the late 1940s and 1950s. The notion that appealing to Russians' latent religiosity through the Russian Orthodox Church is going to be a valuable tool in our Cold War propaganda efforts. But then, once uh, once the Soviet Union is no more, then the Orthodox Church is again an enemy, an enemy of American Protestant religious groups going into Russia in the 1990s and Russian Russian Orthodoxy attempting to keep keep them out. Now let's talk about another important George Kennan, and that's George F. Kennan, and and his views about Russia, because they really do have uh, continue to have residence today. In fact, there was a recent article that I read that called for a revisiting or an updating of his containment policy and how to deal with Russia today. And and these are you every once in a while these come up again. His name is evoked over and over and over. Talk about George F. Kennan and his understanding of Russia and its legacies on how Russia continues to be understood by Americans today. I think the first thing to note is his distant relationship to the other George Kennan, the George Kennan, who is the journalist and explorer from the late 19th century and becomes America's foremost expert on Russia through the period of the revolutions and the Russian Civil War of 1917-1920. So that George Kennan is a distant relative, but also the namesake, and if I remember correctly, born on the same day as George uh, as George F. Kennan, who we know as the uh, the architect of the con- containment strategy in the Cold War. And George F. Kennan makes it very clear from the first volume of his memoirs that uh, he saw himself as predestined to carry on the mission of his great forebear. And I, th- I think that really has to be emphasized because when George F. Kennan is at the height of his influence in the late 1940s in the Truman administration. What he's advocating in the long telegram from 1946 and in the so-called Mr. X article in Foreign Affairs in 1947, what he's advocating, actually, if you read those uh, writings carefully, is not just containment. Everybody, conventionally, historians, uh, political scientists focus on this notion of containment. But actually, Kennan is up to something more than that. Even in the long telegram and the Mr. X article, he's putting forth ideas that there is a big gap between the Russian people and the Soviet communist regime, that Russians remain latently religious, uh, that most Russians are not members of the Communist Party, that even former members of the Communist Party are falling away from faith in communism. So even in 1946 and 1947, Kennan is already setting out some of the premises, some of the underlying notions for a crusade to use the Russian people as our allies in a struggle against the Soviet government, which, uh, which then Kennan is the key figure in developing that crusade by um, at least two tacks. One, uh, when he's the head of the policy planning staff in the State Department, he oversees getting the ball rolling with regard to American covert operations in Eastern Europe and directing Frank Wisner in the Office for Policy Coordination and the Central Intelligence Agency's early activities uh, all around the periphery of the Soviet Union in the Baltic states in Ukraine. That Kennan is the leading figure inspiring the notion that we should shift from 
merely trying to contain Soviet expansionism to actually seeking to roll back Soviet power in Eastern Europe in that in that sense of through of through uh, covert action and support for guerrilla movements. And, but Kennan is also the key figure in the founding of National uh, Committee for Free Europe with a parent organization for Radio Free Europe and of AMCOM Lib, the American Committee for the Liberation of the, of the Peoples of Russia, AMCOM Lib for, for short, which becomes the parent organization for radio liberation, radio, later radio liberty. So Kennan in that period in the, in the late 1940s is not merely focusing on containment. And I think it's worth having in mind here how Kennan was conscious of his following in the footsteps of his great uh, namesake in launching a crusade for a free Russia. Now, George F. Kennan differed uh, from his forebearer in some respects. For example, in another article that he wrote in Foreign Affairs in 1951, he argued that we should not expect a Russia liberated from Stalinism to be a Russia remade in America's image. And he argued with a knowledge of Russian history that Russia didn't have much experience with what we call free enterprise and that Russians do not have a long history of democratic self-government, that maybe what we should expect in a post-Stalinist Russia will be an authoritarian regime, perhaps under a, um, a, a tough military leader. So he diverged from his namesake in that kind of thinking, but in the notion that Americans could side with the Russian people against the Soviet government, he's directly paralleling the crusade by his forebear in the late 19th century, who argues the same thing. We should sympathize with the people of Russia against the oppressive czarist government. One prominent thing, and I think it, it certainly uh, goes in line with what you're saying about Kennan, is that one theme in Russia analysis is what Paul Starobin called in an article in 2014, Russia is doomed syndrome. And this is the the role of prophecy and the idea of trying to identify, but also in some ways, in many ways, desire the collapse of the Russian government system, whatever that government system may be. Talk about the role of prophecy and, and how that has influenced how Americans understand Russia. There are a couple of different kinds of prophecy that are here. So you're, ta you're talking about uh, Russia's doom syndrome, a very pessimistic notion of Russia's outlook. During the Cold War, there was this saying um, that the Soviet Union was upper volta with rockets. A an American writer for the Atlantic magazine, if I remember correctly, in the 1990s, remade that and, and called it Zaire with permafrost. The, no the notion that Russia is, is hopeless particularly Russia when it is resistant to American advice, uh, when Russia diverges from what Americans expect or want about Russia, that sort of Russia is doomed syndrome, I think, is most prominent in phases when Americans despair of remaking, reshaping Russia, when the Americans feel that they've lost the ability to uh, influence Russia. The other, the other kind of prophecy, on the other hand, involves an assumption that Americans can, in fact, reshape Russia. And so for George Kennan, the elder, the confidence that, uh, that Americans could reshape Russia in a positive way had enormous uh, distorting impact on the way that he shaped public opinion and in the advice that he gave to the United States government. So in 1917, when he welcomes the uh, the overthrow of the Tsarist autocracy and says, exiles free, this is the fulfillment of what he's been advocating ever since the late 19th century, his confidence that that's the, uh, that is the uh, fulfillment of an authentic Russian revolution and that the Bolsheviks therefore represent a small group of conspiratorial usurpers and therefore we can intervene militarily with small forces in northern Russia and eastern Siberia and we can expect the real Russian people to rally around our force. That's the, that's the advice that he gives the United States government in 1918 when Robert Lansing calls upon him as the foremost American expert on Russia to offer his guidance. And I think Kennan's prophetic vision that Russia is destined to be free in the sense of remade in America's image has an enormous distorting impact on the way he's advised uh, the American government and on the way he influences American public expectations through his lectures and through his through his magazine articles. A more recent example about prophecy would be the way that Michael McFall, the 
a recent U.S. ambassador to Russia, has been uh, making predictions about Russia's democratic future for a, for a long time and arguing that Russia was on the way to, you know, they had an unfinished revolution in his, in his phrasing, but the revolution is destined eventually to be consummated. And we know the ways that it should eventually be uh, consummated. Well, that leads Americans to look for evidence that is going to confirm the preconceptions, that is going to support the prophecies, to, to suggest that, in fact, lo and behold, here, the prophecy is being fulfilled. To step back from those details, I think it, it's worth thinking about the way that American sense of their, many American sense of their place in the world has hinged on a sort of teleological notion that the United States is destined to be the end point of history, that all other societies around the world are destined to move more slowly or more rapidly towards an end point of history, which is associated with the United States. And Francis Fukuyama was the one who put this in perhaps the most dramatic, uh, striking way in his article in 1989 about the end of history, the notion that liberal democracy has has triumphed and there, there are no further rivals. But I think many Americans have had this notion, uh, this teleological notion, and prophecy is centrally related to that. I mean, there's this presumption that we know what the future uh, of these foreign countries should be. And therefore, if they're not moving along that path, it must be because some usurpers, some corrupt forces, some sinister conspirators have taken country X off of its proper or natural historical past. So I think prophecy has had an enormous distorting impact on, on American ideas about Russia. And it's very interesting in that respect that George F. Kennan, after he left the United States government, argued against precisely this notion. So his, his advice became, let the Russians be Russians. Let's not, pre let's not presume that we know uh, what their country should be like. Let's um, fashion our policy in a way to promote the most favorable evolution of Russians, but let's let the Russians be the one to, to fulfill their own historical destiny. It's interesting to me that while the uh, going back to Kennan and his resonance today, that the, the, this early Kennan of the 19, late 1940s and early 1950s is always brought back, but the late Kennan before his death is kind of, it's more or less buried or disregarded to some extent. And I always find that quite interesting that this latter part uh, of Kennan doesn't have more resonance. Yeah, well, the, the United States government, American politicians, and the American media latch on to the advice, the recommendations, the wisdom that they want to hear, don't they? And, uh, and the voices that are not welcome, the people who are trying to counter the conventional wisdom and to challenge self-flattering notions, uh, those voices are often unwelcome. As I stated in the beginning, it's almost 10 years since your book came out. How has the mission to free Russia persisted in your view? And, and how have some of the past tropes continued to en endure in our understanding of Russia today? Well, I think that in, in recent years, the mission part has really uh, declined and been shut down. So you know that uh, that Russia has shut down the American Peace Corps operations, that either by Russian initiative or American initiative, all sorts of ventures uh, of cultural exchange and educational exchange have been restricted or closed down, that people in Russia who are receiving American uh, financial support are now have to be designated as foreign agents, and that they shut down their operations. So that, that whole mission, particularly in the sense of political mission to promote uh, American-style democracy in Russia, has really been shut down under, under Putin in the last, uh, in the last 10 years in particular. Since the revision of the R Russian laws with regard to religious freedom in the late 1990s, I think 1997 was the date, the freedom of American missionaries to operate in Russia has also been, been severely uh, constricted. So there was a recent law just passed a few weeks ago too, further constricting uh, missionaries as well. Yeah, yeah. Well, the Orthodox Church has has uh, has gotten increasing um, political sway in Russia in the last fifteen twenty years. So you know there have been recent bursts 
uh, of advocacy of a free Russia. You can remember the uh, the way that uh, Pussy Riot got so much attention in the American media with the notion that they, that's, you know, the New York Times is calling for. They are the representatives of the kind of Russia that, that we want to see, sort of oblivious to how unappealing to most Russians the Pussy Riot ideas and their tactics are. So I, I think on the whole, the trajectory is towards decline, although, you know, Mike McFall was the U.S. ambassador to Russia just a few years ago, and he still had a kind of agenda to meet with uh, Russian human rights activists and lend them American moral support. So it wasn't entirely dead, but I would say it's pretty close to dead now. And that that leads into, I think, the emphasis on the other side, uh, that when the missions to free Russia are closed down, then I think you see the peak of the demonization uh, of Russia as an evil empire in the clutch of a despotic government, which I think we've seen uh, very strongly. I think I closed that book published in 2007 with a, with a bit of a prediction. I mean, I, he, I, I hesitate ever to make a prediction, but I did sort of predict that Americans were so deeply attached to the uh, demonization of the dark double that this was going to be a dynamic that would persist, that it wasn't done in 2007. And I think that's, that's held up pretty well uh, over the last nine years, that if anything, the demonization of Putin has just ratcheted up to astonishing levels. It's so pervasive in the American mass media, in American newspaper editorials, in American magazine covers, uh, so much attention to how this evil, bloody thug is the core of the problem in, uh, f uh, for, for the United States in that, in that part of the world. That, that certainly has persisted. And finally, we're more or less, one can argue, in a period in where many institutions of liberal democracy are under stress. I mean, not just here in the United States, but also in Europe, most visibly. And in thinking about the American mission to spread democracy more generally, and, and here I think it's in, I think I would add to idea or your, your statements about the mission kind of collapsing in Russia, that we do see it still operating in other post-Soviet states in Russia's periphery, right? Georgia is a good example. Ukraine is, of course, is the most visible example. And thinking about this American mission to spread democracy more generally, uh, what, do you, what to what extent do you think that this crusade is a narcissistic endeavor? And you already pointed to this in the context of the late 19th century. Despite all the crises undergoing in the United States, you still get people loving these stories about, you know, the story of Kennan and the revolutionaries putting the American flag and people stomping their feet and in, in, in love with these kinds of stories. So what does the success of the democracy project or the spread of American liberalism attempt to reaffirm the righteousness of the American self and American identity? Well, I first want to say that I think that um, – Many of the people who have been involved in trying to promote democracy in Russia have been uh, sincere, genuine idealists. They really believe that they're doing something good. Uh, many of them have expended enormous amounts of time in a, a genuine, well-meaning effort, whether they're trying to reform Russia's legal system or its political system. So I, I wouldn't want to cast a negative light on their motives. But I do think there's a there's a problem in the way the work has been carried out. And this gets back to what I, a central lesson that should be derived from America's experience with trying to remake foreign nations in general, with the whole notion of nation building in foreign countries. I, I think the single most important lesson to take out of America's experience, whether it's in Vietnam or elsewhere, is that we can perhaps exert a positive influence by supporting positive forces in the foreign society, but we cannot step in and do it for them. And to the extent that we try to tell them what to do, the ramifications are usually unpleasant and uh, not, not effective. So I, I think in theory, as you say, a, a success in American democracy promotion would promote a, an affirmation of, a, of an American self of righteousness, of an American self sense of virtue. But even that success or presumed success 
can have a negative historical legacy. So take the cases of, of Germany and Japan, arguably the two most successful cases of American military occupations leading to a transformation uh, of, a, of a foreign nation. Well, the, the notion that the United States is the key to the transformation of Japan after 1945 and of Germany after 1945 is that that notion involves downplaying the role of the Japanese and the role of the Germans in the transformation of their own societies. So to the extent that Americans embrace that self-flattering notion, they blind themselves going forward. So a good example of this, I think, is the way that in 2002, in anticipation of the war in Iraq, the George W. Bush administration put out to journalists the idea that they knew what to do in the, in, in the event that there was a war and an occupation of Iraq, that they would follow the lesson of Japan and they would stall a Douglas MacArthur-like figure as the leader of a post-war country, and that would guarantee the positive transformation of the nation. Well, that's that's self-flattering, but it also, it's also in a way delusional and certainly has a very negative impact. It's a, so, a sort of insulting or humiliating message to convey to the foreign people. And certainly somebody like John Dower, the pre preeminent historian of the U.S. occupation of Japan, would say, did say that this is very uh, mistaken to think that, that it is Americans and not Japanese who undertook the transformation of Japanese society. So, yeah, I, I agree very much with your premise that success in democracy promotion uh, affirms a sense of American self-righteousness, but that can have an enormously negative ramification. That was David Folingson, professor of history at Rutgers University, where he specializes in American and Russian relations. He's the author of The American Mission and the Evil Empire. His most recent article is The Perils of Prophecy, American Predictions about Russia's Future Since 1881. I'm your host, Sean Guillory, and this is the SRB Podcast. If you enjoy this podcast and want to help support it, please take a moment to share it on Facebook and Twitter, like my Facebook page, Sean's Russia Blog, write a review, or recommend the show to your friends. You can also support the podcast by making a donation at seansrussiablog.org. Thank you to everyone who's contributed. You can find past shows on iTunes, Mixcloud, and SoundCloud, or you can download them directly from seansrussiablog.org as well. Until next time, bye. Sustain our way of life You and I